Well, happy Halloween. See a few people dressed up, a giraffe, uh, somebody from Progressive, Flo, that's funny. I thank that Tyrannosaurus Rex, who's not here, wherever he went, thank you. Uh, that would have been something if that Tyrannosaurus Rex would have been here. Wow. So, uh, if you didn't know, the new iPhones are out. You've got your 8, you've got your 8 Plus, you've got your X, you know, I'm people doing this, whatever. I got my 8 Plus. I just realized that was a humble brag. I'm sorry. Uh, I did get an A+. Plus. It's actually really nice. It's a little bit bigger. Do some reading on my phone. That might have been humble brag. Anyway, um, apparently, it's, you know, the iPhone X has got these great new features like recognition, apparently, and emojis. I have no idea what those are still, but apparently you can make these emojis do things with their faces. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Uh, all that to say, it, it's, it's pretty cool. And I was actually reading up on some of the, the iPhones and things like that, and there was this random link on the side uh, about Samsung. It said Samsung versus uh, Apple. So I was intrigued. I was a sheep. I just clicked on it. And up came this video. And it, it was uh, from their ad campaign. Samsung did this ad campaign against Apple a couple of years ago. I thought it was uh, interesting. Let's, let's watch it. Hey, they're saying that this phone's going to be like a precious jewel. Ooh, I love that. The headphone jack is going to be on the bottom. I heard the connector is all digital. What? What does that even mean? Who knows? I'm psyched. All I'm saying is that they should have a priority line for people who've waited five times. I heard you have to have an adapter to use the dock on the new one. Yeah, yeah, but they make the coolest adapters. Welcome back. I guess the Galaxy S3 didn't work out. No, I, I love the GS3. It's extremely awesome. I'm just saving a spot in line for someone. That's not cool. Yeah, man. This year, we're finally getting everything that we didn't get last year. Yeah. The big screen. True 4G. Yep. What is that? Hey, what'd you just do? Oh, I just sent him a playlist. By touching phones? Yep. Simple as that. It's the Galaxy S3. Hey. Hey, Mom, Dad. Oh, thanks for holding our spot. Hey, man. Oh, hey. How's it going? Saved you a spot. I moved on. But you're not going to miss all this? Uh, I got the Samsung GS3 now. Is that a Samsung? That's a new Samsung. It is. It's pretty cool. But I kind of like it. This one's 4G. Yeah, we've had that for a while. This one's got a big screen. This one has a bigger one. And we can share videos instantly. You can watch a video while you're sending an email. But we're going to get that for sure. Maybe not this time, but the next time. Yeah, so that was a couple of years ago, apparently. Anyway, kind of funny, but obviously, you know, shots fired from Samsung to Apple. I'm not working for Samsung or, or anything, but anyway, you know, which phone to buy? Do we buy an Apple? Do we buy a Samsung? Do we buy whatever? You know, these, these advertisers here, they're battling for our hearts and our minds so that we're going to buy their product. And it, just like Samsung and Apple were in an advertising war, the Apostle Paul, he's in kind of an advertising war of his own with a group in the first century in Philippi. You see, this semester, if you've been with us at Veritas, we're working our way through the book of Philippians. And we tonight we arrive at chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up or look on your phones if you want. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> now, the people that he's battling were a group known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were descendants from a group known as the Pharisees. Now, uh, the Pharisees, they were a very prominent and respected group in the first century. Uh, they, they prided themselves on meticulously following every aspect, large and small, so they thought, of God's law. 
of God's Torah in the Old Testament. You see, they had such a zeal to obey God's law that they tried to be holier than God. So, you know, if God's Ten Commandments were kind of the fence that set up, the, the, the Pharisees would set up about a fence about 50 feet away. They didn't want to even come close to breaking God's commandments. Here's an example. So the fourth commandment, uh, obey the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath. It's a day set apart for the people of God not to do any work, to rest. Well, the Pharisees interpreted that, and here's what they said. They said that you are not allowed to spit on a field on the Sabbath. That's a law. If you spit on a field on the Sabbath, you broke God's law, so they thought. You know why? Because potentially that water, the saliva in your spit, could fall on a seed and could potentially germinate a seed and could start growing. And technically, if you did that, you've done work on the Sabbath. That gives you a little picture into the heart of the Pharisees. Now, the biggest problem with this group was their pride. You see, they believed that they were righteous. They believed that they were holy. They believed that they were accepted by God. And Jesus, in the New Testament, if you've read it, you know he spoke very harshly to this group in order to wake them up to the fact that they were sinners who needed a Savior. And so here's what, uh, before we talk about their differences, let me talk about just what Paul and the Judaizers, here's what they had in common. They both saw the importance of being in God's presence. They actually wanted to do that in their own way. Both of them are trying and seeking to enter his presence. And both of them, here's the second thing they have in common, both of them knew you couldn't just waltz into God's presence like you'd, you know, visit your friend or your family. Hey, I'm home, what's up? You know, there goes my mic. Both of them, it's back, both of them, uh, to one degree or another, would agree uh, with this, this video. It's about God's holiness. Let's, let's watch it. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. So that last line, gosh, it's really good. If you're impure, God's presence is dangerous to you, not because he's bad, but because he's so good. This is the reality of who God is. This is what both groups knew. So, yes, they had a couple of things in common, but, man, there's one really, really big difference. They disagreed about how people can actually enter God's presence. Here's what the Judaizers believed. They believed in a two-handed approach. They believed in a two-handed approach. So imagine you're standing before the temple, uh, and the presence of God is just beyond the main doors, right? And as those doors open, you enter in and you lift both of your hands to God, hoping he will accept what is in your hands. In one hand, you have your faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, because God, you are so holy and I am impure. And in the other hand, you have your resume, the other hand, you have your resume. For the, Jews, for the Judaizers, their resume was their ability to adhere 
to the law, adhere to those certain aspects of Jewish practices that were commanded in the Old Testament. For them, you could only eat certain foods. You had to observe the Sabbath. And most importantly, and sorry guys, uh, you also had to be circumcised. The apostle, not apostle, but Luke, the author Luke, says it this way in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 5. This is what was going on in the first century. This is kind of the controversy here. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. See, they thought in a two-handed approach to stand in God's presence, we have to have faith in Jesus and we have to have a resume. And back then, it was adhering to certain aspects of the Mosaic law. It's a two-handed approach. The thinking was that, okay, if you step through these doors of this temple into God's presence, he's going to take a look at what's in your hand. Faith in Jesus, check, I like that. And your resume, check, okay, that'll work. That was the thinking of the Judaizers. So, by the time Paul is writing this letter, and the letter gets to the city of Philippi in the first century, this teaching, it was starting to gain some interest and starting to gain some momentum among Christians. It's sounding pretty good to a lot of people. You know, it's all over television. It's starting to trend on social media, all of that. And so this is why. This is why Paul comes out with a campaign of his own. He's responding to this campaign of the Judaizers. He's trying to change their perspective, trying to show people, trying to teach people, trying to move people. No, this is not right. And so he does in these verses, he does and responds in four ways. This is how he responds to these Judaizers in four ways. Here's the first. Paul tells them to look out for this two-handed approach. Let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, there's a lot in that verse. We can't talk about all of it. But there's a few interesting things to note from these verses. First and foremost, notice the phrase, look out. It's repeated three times. Not every translation has it, uh, but in the Greek, there's the same phrase, look out, look out, look out, three times there. That's That's a big deal. And so that shows that this two-handed approach, it's a very serious threat. We always need to be on our guard and looking out. Second thing, notice the language that he uses to describe these uh, Judaizers. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. I just want to talk about, I only have time to talk about one of these, and that's dogs. You know, in the first century, a dog, not a cute little house pet. Gosh, I wish I had one or two. Let me, let me be a foster family. My wife wants to be a foster family of dogs. No way. Uh, instead, she heard that probably. Instead, this is a term of derision. This is a large, big-time insult. You know, dogs are filthy scavengers to be avoided. And interestingly enough, the Jews called Gentiles dogs. They called Gentiles dogs because they thought of the Gentiles as unclean and impure. So you can imagine the great irony and the cutting nature of this comment where Paul calls these Jewish people dogs. Last one from these verses. Notice that Paul says that we Christians, true Christians, true people that belong to God, we put no confidence in the flesh. You see, he's subtly referring here to the Judaizers' two-handed approach, specifically the fact that they have their faith in Jesus on the one hand, and they're holding their resume before God 
in the other. And that fact, the fact that they're holding this resume, it shows that they are confident in their own ability to stand before God. And as we saw in that video, if you think that you're confident to stand before the sun, it's not going to go well for you. Not because the sun is bad, but because of how good and awesome and holy the sun is. If that's true of the sun, one little small star in our galaxy, how much more is true of God who made the entire universe? Second aspect of Paul's ad campaign here is he reminds us how futile our resumes are. Reminds us how futile our resumes are. He does this in a, in a genius way. So, so what he does is he assumes, he kind of plays the two-handed game. He plays the two-handed approach, and he thinks it's correct. He says, okay, fine, let's assume your two-handed approach is right. i got my faith in Jesus, and i got my resume in the other hand. Here's what he says, verse 3. Let's back it up just a little bit. It says, we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has more reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he breaks down his resume into two parts. First half is who he is. Second half is what he's done. So who is he? Well, he's the model Israelite. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He was given that outward sign of inclusion of God's people. That's what circumcision was in the Old Testament. As soon as it possibly could. You know, there were some people, maybe Gentiles who converted to Judaism, that got the sign a little bit later in life. They weren't thought of as, whole, as, as holy as someone who was circumcised a lot earlier. So he's circumcised as early as possible. He's of the people of Israel, included in the chosen people of God from birth. Of the tribe of Benjamin. There are 12 tribes in the people of Israel. Benjamin was the only tribe that remained faithful, that remained united throughout the entire people of Israel's history, through the splitting of the kingdom, through the exile, through the return. A Hebrew of Hebrews, he's 100% Hebrew, no mixed race in his blood, and that, in that culture, in that time, that was thought of as a big deal. So what he's done? Well, he's done a lot more than you and me. Uh, but also any, a lot more than anybody in his day either. He was part of the most prestigiously trained group, the Pharisees. He was zealous. Zeal was a very highly prioritized quality among Jews. You know, he mentions an aspect of his former life. If you know Paul's story, before he became a Christian, before he saw Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was a persecutor of Christians. He was overseeing the imprisonment and the capture of Christians. He was hunting them down. He even oversaw the first martyr of a Christian. All that to say, when Paul puts up his resume against the Judaizers, it makes theirs look silly and foolish because his resume was as good as it gets. Now, I, I said he's something, doing something genius here. He's implicitly inviting us, subtly inviting us to reflect on our own resumes. The fact that he lists his here He's encouraging us to think about what would we say? You know what? We've got faith in Jesus if we're Christian or faith in whatever. But then we've got a resume. What's, what's that? When I, when I say resume, I mean the things that, that you and I believe are going to give us significance, that are going to give us value, that are going to give us respect, that are going to give us peace, that are going to make us righteous. These are the things that, gosh, if we can only have this, if it could only be this, if we can only do this, then, oh, that'd be... That'd, it's fine. I'm at, I'm at peace. 
That's what I mean when I think about resumes. They can be explicit. Now, I, I think most, if not all of you, have done this already, or maybe you're in the process of actually writing your resume. Doesn't that sound fun? You know, you craft it on a piece of paper. It's what you put after your email signature. I don't think I have to convince anybody in here how important they are to our culture today. You know, the, the Career Center, maybe some of you are taking this class right now, they have introduction to resume writing, and then they have advanced resume writing. I get intimidated thinking about that. I have people devoted, it's their jobs to help people write their resumes. Now, I, I will say this uh, about the explicit resumes, slight rabbit trail here. You know, <clears throat> I think there's been an increased focus on the important importance of resumes in maybe the last five, uh, ten years or so. You know, when I was in college in the early 2000s, there, maybe it was my major, maybe it was me, <laughs> but there, there really wasn't a lot of talk of resume writing. But, but today, you know, if I don't hear somebody talking about the fact that they've got to do an internship or they've got to think about their career or what their time in college, that, that's, that's, that's a surprise to me. And so I know a lot of you have a love-hate relationship with these resume buildings because, gosh, you've got to makes you so busy. You've got to be so involved. You don't necessarily want this schedule for yourself, but if you want to get a good job after college and if you, if you want to make a living, you just got to kind of play the game. Now, there's probably, I think there's probably a few reasons for this. Maybe a big factor, I think a big factor was that financial crisis in the late 2000s. You know, companies lost a lot of money, so they've got less resources. And so if I'm a company, I'm not just going to take anybody. I'm going to take the best of the best. And so I'm going to require a lot more of my new hires. And so the standards of acceptance have increased. And so less jobs with higher requirements means increased pressure on you guys in the here and now to make the most of your time and to craft that perfect resume. And so hear me say, I'm empathetic to those of you who have to play the resume game, who have to craft those explicit resumes. But explicit resumes aren't the only ones. We've got subtle resumes. These are kind of the default heart settings, things that we think, things that we feel, things that we don't necessarily tell other people. They're attitudes and opinions. We're not dumb enough to actually say these things out loud. So with all that said, the invitation still stands. What's, what's on your resume? Academically, would you put your internship on there? Every good deed that you've done, your high school GPA, your college GPA, your body of work in the journalism school, whatever you've done, papers and articles that you've published. Maybe it's the job you're on the track to get or the job you already have. What's on your social resume? Is it your relational connections? The people that you know, the friend groups that you run in, the parties you go to, the dates that you bring, the Instagram followers you have, the clothes that you wear, how inclusive you are. What's on your spiritual resume? What's on your spiritual resume? How many mission trips have you gone on? Maybe every mission trip you've gone on. The conversations that you have with others about Jesus, the quality of your quiet times the ways that you've overcome certain sins in your life, what's on your spiritual resume? Again, nobody goes around and says, here it is. It's just, they're subtle. They're default heart settings. We silently believe these. You know, we quietly question. We quietly evaluate. What are other people doing? Ooh, maybe I should do this. What about that? Ooh, that's good. I'm going to try that. And maybe a more important question than what is your resume is, is honestly, in an honest moment, not what you should say, but what's really there. How do you view that resume? How do you really view 
that resume, do you believe that resume, whatever it is, do you think it makes you significant and valuable and righteous and acceptable and something special? If you are, you know, you and I, we're approaching God with two hands up. Faith in Jesus and our resume. You know how God, not God, you know how Paul, you know how Paul views his own resume? And by extension, all other resumes? He says that it's shit. Verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, not just some of the things, but everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That English word rubbish doesn't capture what Paul really said there. I said what Paul really said there. That original Greek word he uses, it's, it's a word for, shall we say, excrement. He puts that in the Bible. That's in the Bible. So Paul's telling us, you get the point, right? Paul's telling us something so important. He's telling us our resumes are worthless. They don't really matter. God's not going to accept them. He, he, he reminds us this in these, in these verses that we just read. He says this three times. What did Paul do concerning his resume? He counted it as loss. He counted everything as a loss. He suffered the loss of all things. Is that how you view your resume? Are you still clinging to it? Is it faith in Jesus and, and the resume? Here's the test. I don't know if you're really clinging to it. Let's pretend. Let's play the worst case scenario game. I play that with myself a lot. It sounds weird. But worst case scenario game. Let's pretend that God did not accept your resume. Maybe not even God. Maybe someone that you really value their opinion. Pretend that you found out that what you had, your faith in Jesus and then the resume, let's pretend that it didn't matter. If you found that out, would you be disappointed or would you be devastated? Disappointed means if it wasn't there, yes, absolutely, it'd be sad. Understandably, it's hard. But you can go on. You get over it after a while. Devastated means the world stops. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You can't think. You can't function. Disappointment or devastated? You know, for me, as I was thinking about this, this is a very, you know, it's a tough question to ask. There have been times over my life, it's kind of certain seasons are good, certain seasons are bad. But for me, what, what really I cling to a lot is being respected and valued by my peers and by my bosses. I want to be taken seriously. The worst case scenario for me is if I'm forgotten. It's like these people are sitting in a room and going, oh, I don't know, who should we invite to the party? Who should we ask to speak? Who should we get their opinions on? Who should speak at the whatever? Austin? Nah, nah, not worth our time. Not good enough. We can find somebody better. That's my worst case scenario. That's what I'm tempted to be devastated. Now, if that happened, should I be disappointed? Absolutely. If that happened to you, yes. But would it devastate you? That's what I got to wrestle with. That's what we have to wrestle with. So for you, what's that? You know, if your GPA dropped a full point, disappointed or devastated? If your boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you, disappointed or devastated? If you gained some weight, if somebody in your ministry started getting a little more praise, a little more accolade, a little more notice, disappointed or devastated? It's that two-handed approach. Here's the third aspect of Paul's ad campaign. He doesn't just leave us telling our resumes are worthless. He tells us what's better. 
He tells us the true way to righteousness. And finally, he's gotten to the heart of this campaign. You know, if you roll out these ads, add one, add two, add three, this is the culmination. This is the big one. So when those doors open up, we're in the presence of God. What do we do instead of hold two hands up? We just hold one hand up. We just hold one hand up. Let's, let's back up. Let's read verse 7. Again, we're going to read 7 through 9. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, when Paul says he counts all as loss, he's let go of his resume. He's just let it go. And he's left clinging to one thing. He's got one hand up, and that's his faith in Jesus. And he's able to do that because he realized two things. He realized two things. The first, he realized that he's already got a better resume. Faith in Christ comes with a better resume. Verse 9, it says, Paul says he doesn't have a righteousness of his own, but a righteousness from who? A righteousness from God. The God of the universe, the one that is holding this entire creation, every atom together, you and me, this is the righteousness that we have. This is who it's from. He now has an acceptance, a value, a significance that is better than anything that he could dream of. And now, he's also got a resume from Jesus. He's got Jesus' resume. One commentator, he put it this way. He said, when we hear the righteousness from God, we should picture righteousness flowing from God to the believer. God gives Jesus lifelong record of perfect obedience to the person who trusts in him for salvation. This only happened because Jesus, when he entered into our story, entered into this world, he lived out every aspect of the law perfectly. So now that we don't have to, God doesn't require that anymore because it's been met. And so when God gives us that righteousness, he now, he thinks of Jesus' obedience as belonging to that person, as belonging to you and to me. And therefore, we stand before God, not as guilty, but as righteous forever. Can't lose that. Can't lose that. And of course, that means we've been given a new status. So I want to keep driving this point home because if you're like me, you need to hear this again and again. Same concept, different words. If we've put our faith in Jesus and we're trusting in him for our righteousness, there's nothing, catch this, nothing that you and I can do to change that status. It doesn't matter who we've slept with. It doesn't matter who we've lied to, who we've cheated. It doesn't matter how many times you've cheated on a test. It doesn't matter what you did before you became a Christian. Maybe that stuff still haunts you, still follows you. Maybe you regret some things in your past. That does not change your status before God. God still looks at you and he sees Jesus. He views us the same way as he does Jesus, loved, valued, proud of, honored. And it's only because Jesus has given you and he's given me his righteousness. Here's the second thing that Paul, the second reason why Paul was able to let go of his resume. He wanted to. He wanted to let it go. 
He had to let it go, absolutely, and he wanted to let it go. He realized Jesus' resume was better. Look at verse 8. It says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Now, the, the Philippians were primarily Gentile people, pagan background. To this, to them, overall, that's a radical claim to say that you can know a God. When Paul was going around the ancient city of Athens, he came across, this is the book of Acts chapter 17, he came across this altar, and it said, there was an inscription, it said, to an unknown God. This was kind of the catch-all for all of the gods that the, the, the Greeks might have thought of been out there. They didn't want to make any of them mad, so they just kind of had a catch-all. That was common. Not in this story. Paul says that he can actually know Christ, and it surpasses worth. God in Christ has made this possible. The God of the Bible, he wants to be known by us. And this is better than anything that Paul can imagine. You see, he doesn't just see facts about his status with God, his status with Jesus. He actually sees them as better. And so what about you? What about you? Do, do you not only see your need to let go of your, your resume, but do you want to let it go? Do you want to let it go? It's possible. It's possible you can Last thing, Paul closes out his campaign against these Judaizers by letting us know the difference that this one-handed approach has actually had in his life. He tells us what's better, and then he kind of proves it. He tells us, here's what's happened, and here's what should happen. Verses 10 and 11, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, and I want to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's kind of extreme language there, but when Paul is saying that he wants to share Jesus' sufferings and become like Jesus in death, it doesn't mean he has a death wish. It doesn't mean that he seeks out situations where he can be beat up and all of that, but it means that there's a willingness. There's a willingness to suffer, willingness to be to present yourself to circumstances that might not be as ideal as you would like. He's no longer worried about his own self-purpose and his own comfort. But he's willing and he's, he's open to that. You know, Paul understood something profound about life. He understood that we become like those that we love. He understood that we become like those that we love. So since Jesus is willing to suffer and die for Paul, now Paul is willing to die and to suffer for others. Paul's life is slowly but surely, over time, two steps forward, one step back, looking more and more like Jesus. Now, that might sound new to you and me, but it shouldn't, because we've heard this. John 15, verse 20, it's a fourth gospel here in the New Testament. Remember, Jesus says, Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, you and I, we might not have to physically suffer and die for our faith, but it does mean that over time, there needs to be a willingness for our lives to become more oriented towards others. We should think about others more, want to do for others what we would have done for ourselves. Mark 9.35, this is a great verse and a scary verse all at once. Jesus is saying, those of you who want to be first, you want to be the most exalted, you want to be thought of the most high, here's what you do now, you ready? Be last. Be last of all. Be servant of all. I don't know about you, but that's awesome and scary and Lord help me all at once. Are you willing 
Am I willing to enter into hardship for Jesus' sake? Is your life looking more and more like Jesus? You know, the trajectory of Jesus' life, remember we heard a couple weeks ago, it's down. Jesus is not on the upward track to get the best job. He's down. He's taking the jobs nobody wants. He's willing to stay in a mediocre situation, go to a city that nobody wants to live at, do a job that doesn't pay as much. He's on a downward trajectory. Are you willing to do that? Don't compare yourself to yesterday. Compare yourself to last year. Compare yourself to a couple years ago. Are you willing to serve everyone, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of looks, regardless of the Greek house they're in or the dorm they live in or what city they came from or what political party they voted or what sexual preference they had, on and on. We could go, are are you willing to serve? Because Jesus did. Paul wanted to. Paul's willing to do that because of what he says in verse 11, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, the good news for every person who puts their faith in Jesus approaches God with one hand up is that though we're going to experience suffering and death in this life, everybody's going to die. Even though that's going to happen, God ensures that one day we're going to be reunited with him through our bodily resurrection. The greatest possible existence and future that we could want is living for eternity with a resurrected body in the presence of Jesus. And so, as we close, Paul is telling us, he's telling you, he's telling me, come to God. Come to God. Not with two hands up, not with faith in Jesus and your resume, but with one hand up, with your faith in Jesus, looking to him and to him alone. As the worship team comes up, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I so often fall for the other ad campaign. I fall for the message that says I can enter your presence with two hands up, one in my faith in Jesus or faith in whatever, and the other with my resume. It doesn't work. It can't work. It's not as good. It's not as satisfying. What I pray for me and I pray for all of us in this room that we would heed Paul's advice, that we would more and more want to enter into your presence with one hand up, looking to you, letting go of our resumes, and clinging to you, being reminded that we have a resume that is weirdly similar to yours. Turns out it's not so weird, though. It's exact. It's purposeful. Jesus Your resume is our resume. Help us to believe that and help us to want that more and more. Would that impact the way that we live our lives? Now, would we go where nobody wants to go? Would we love who nobody wants to love? We pray this in Jesus' name.